Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello again. It may sound odd to say I've missed you, but I really am thrilled to be reconnecting as a community again over a new story and a new recipe. I am so thankful to today's guests, John and Rebecca, for pausing with me over the last several weeks to lament and clear space for more pressing conversations. But now I'm behind by a few episodes and I really can't wait to share them. Next week, I'll be attempting to make a dish that my guest Moy says profoundly connects all of Trinidad and Tobago. And the week after that, we'll be hearing from Nermeen, a woman who achieved the rare honor of being a diplomat for her home country of Egypt. While in that position, she fell in love with an American diplomat, then resigned, became an American citizen, and now practices culinary diplomacy as she and her family travel the world in foreign service. So please take a moment right now to hit that subscribe button. And now to tell you a little bit about today's warm and lovely guests that I could have chatted with long past the two and a half hours that we did talk. John and Rebecca are both Emmy award-winning screenwriters. They're parents to four children, doting grandparents, and absolutely passionate home cooks. In fact, I think they're the most passionate home cooks I've ever met. John and Rebecca believe that feasting together is the path to creating family. While Rebecca uses inspiration and solid know-how to use up leftovers in exciting and delicious ways, John takes a meticulously researched approach to his cooking. They combined their gifts, styles, and experiences to self-publish a cookbook titled Our Wild Savory Kitchen. Today, they're sharing John's jambalaya recipe, born one magical evening in the bayou, perfected in long conversations with famed chef Paul Prudhomme, and now enjoyed together by John, Rebecca, and their children as a way of celebrating life. I could have sworn you guys lived in Connecticut. Am I crazy? Oh, we live uh, along the Monterey Bay, uh, below San Francisco, in a town called Santa Cruz. From where we're standing here, about three miles from where we're standing, uh, is the middle of the Monterey Bay. If you were to drop the Grand Canyon into the middle of Monterey Bay, it would vanish. And then, if you took this a second, exact same size Grand Canyon and dropped that that into the Monterey Bay, that would vanish. It's eleven thousand feet deep. Oh my! Okay. Great fishing. What? Right. <laughs> Who knows what lurks in Monterey Bay? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Great white sharks and really? yeah, lots of things, lots of wildlife. It's beautiful up here. It's beautiful. Where are you all? Yeah, so I'm outside D.C. We're about 45 minutes north in a Maryland suburb. Uh So when I hear Bay, I'm thinking Chesapeake Bay, which (laughs) (laughs) it is home to a lot of wildlife, but not like that. (laughs) But the best crabs that I've ever had. Best crabs. Yes, I read about that in your cookbook. So my grandmother was from Southern Maryland and her birthday was the 4th of July, which is, you know, the summer is perfect time for a crab feast. So every year on her birthday, we would go down and have a big old crab feast at their little place, which always involved fried chicken. 
I don't know why. <laughs> it turns out this is not common, but. <laughs> <laughs> so in your life, I guess every time you showed up at a crab fest, you'd say, where's the chicken? <laughs> exactly. So by the way, we are also John and we're John and Becky, because as oh, I told Rebecca, I made the mistake of switching over to Becky. Interesting. You all are are our doppelgangers in a parallel universe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we should have gotten the Monterey Bay. Yeah, we can swap lives. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't change anything about my life. So as much as I'm joking about that. I, I love the fact that, you know, your home is, is where you never try to escape from. I heard that quote from an Egyptian uh, author is that when you know your home, it's not a place that you want to escape from. So your homes. I love that. She just mentioned that to me the other day. And I thought, wow, I, what an extraordinary way to think of it. Well, it is. And I feel like it's, I mean, especially during this time, mm -hmm. you know, I think we're all kind of reflecting on this idea of home. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Very much. And what, and that doesn't necessarily mean a brick and mortar place either, you know? Mm -mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the perfect segue to go into, <laughs> I would love to talk about a quote that you wrote, I think it was in the introduction to your cookbook. You wrote, when home cooks create feasts, we are busy creating family. And I loved this idea that family is not a static thing. And it's it's something we create, and we create it over food. Yeah, I mean, I, if, if there's one sort of theme that has been with us from the very beginning, is that a whole idea of that food is memory. Uh, and that in turn, memory is family. All, when all of us look back at our growing up time, our families then and our families now with our own children, so much of it is wrapped around memory. Mm -hmm. And we choose these memories and stack them all in a row. And that becomes the narrative of our lives. That's what mm -hmm. we say our life was. That's why we are so interested in, in feasts and, and, and cooking as a celebration of life. We feel like time in the kitchen is really precious. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's what, what I, Rebecca and I will remember always about mm -hmm. our life together is so much of it took place, whether it's, whether it's with our kids during what we call the crowded years, the crowded mm -hmm. years when we were raising four kids and it was all chaotic and wonderfully so. And, or whether it's now with when we're two of us in the kitchen and after a day of writing, um, is how we both unwind, but also how we continue as artists to work in the kitchen. That's what artists do after all they create. The spontaneity of it too is sometimes yes. that's so wonderful. It's like with you know, the muses are with you and yes. I saw it, everything <laughs> in the fridge. And that really is like you're solving some mystery, some puzzles there. And it's like, oh, what, what ingredient can go with this ingredient? Right. And the thing is, that I love, you know, yes, of course, it's art artistry and it's, it's creativity. But the thing is, that rather than making a painting with paint, you know, you're using like mama love, like like love is yeah, pouring yeah. into the food that you're making. And what a great writer said recently, what what activity could possibly be less selfish and more loving than to feed the ones you love? Is it Patience Gray or Michael Pollan? Michael, Paul, Michael Pollan said that. Yeah. It's the ultimate act of love. And also, it's something that you plant a seed, particularly with our children. They are they love to cook. And we planted that seed early on. And, and mm -hmm. it's like this, this legacy that they carry through. And then they carry their memories 
and then make their own memories with their families. Mm -hmm. And and then it just, it just moves forward. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. A few days ago, our oldest daughter uh, called us. She just had a baby a year ago. And so, and so Mm -hmm. she remembered growing up that I made for her what we call in the family zucchini milk. It was so deep in our memory. I think most Mm -hmm. of the, DNA in our children's bodies are made from zucchini milk. <laughs> so you have these, these fresh zucchinis straight from the garden. We used to get them so still warm from the sun and then sauteed in tons of super high quality olive oil and garlic. And then we get that going all, all creamy and, and, mm-hmm. and savory and then covered with all these melty cheeses. And, and so she said, I want to make that for my, my little boy. So she got all this stuff and she made it. And to send me photographs of her and her little boy eating zucchini milk. That was such a powerful experience. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to the beginning, was food always a part of your relationship together? Tell me a little bit about your love story. You know, I was making, uh, uh, producing a TV show and Rebecca's at the same studio. And uh, I had seen her when she walked into the room. I fell desperately in love with her. <laughs> uh, when people talk about love at first sight, boy, I was like a safe fell out of the sky and hit me in the head. And um, so, but I, you know, we're professionals. And so I, I just, <laughs> I thought, look, um, could I, could I buy you lunch one day? And, you know, never saying anything about that I was head over heels in love. And so we, we got together at a outdoor uh, cafe on Sunset Boulevard. I know I sound like I'm making this up, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we had a pasta and mm-hmm. it, the pasta was magical, of course. And so many years later, when we went back to the restaurant, we asked uh, the waiter if he'd be so kind as a as a find out from the chef. What is that one flavor? Yeah. And um, it was vermouth. It's something that I, I had never even thought about cooking with. But one of the things about John was is that I was a, a, a single working mom. I had my two boys, and he had his two girls, and so we brought we we came together with this little mini Brady bunch. But I was just really up against it. <laughs> I was a single working mom, and. I didn't know what this guy was all about and I didn't, I was pretty guarded. So of course it was love at first sight for me, but I just didn't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) You were in a little bit of a self-protective node. Sure. But you know, you, that expression of, of you went, you win the heart through the stomach. Well, yes, we had our first dinner together over at his house. I got a babysitter. It was really a big deal. He made for me, a shrimp pasta. I had never had anything in my life. I did not cook at that time. I, I had never had anything like that in my life. It was fabulous. It was so good. I'd never had a man cook for me before. Mm. Uh, he had this this wonderful French champagne. This was intensely romantic. And then yeah. when I when I tried to make a meal for him the first time in my home, mm-hmm. I did not know how to cook. And I was terrified because here he was this this, this sort of world traveler and, and he made this exotic meal for me. And and so I called my sister, who was a fabulous cook, and she was on the phone with me. She helped me with the poached salmon and when to put the dill in. And it's funny because John does not remember that meal. <laughs> it was so it was unremarkable in every way. <laughs> it's not was... so much the meal. It's just that I was, my, my, I was so busy staring at her and my heart was so full. That, no, uh... it was bad. <laughs> 
it wasn't coming from the heart. It was coming from your sister. <laughs> right. And so, but then when he, he actually was the first one who taught me how to crush garlic into olive oil, you know, he, he taught me so much about cooking. And then of course, when we, what we call the crowded years, then I really, really took the deeper dive. I really <laughs> took the deeper dive into, you know, the LA Times food section was my friend, you know? <laughs> so that was really the beginning for me. And, and then of course, you know, we, we, met, we we catered our own wedding, so when we got I was going to bring that up. You, I, I, I thought that I understood that. What did you make for your guests? So we made, uh, you know, salmon on a plank, mm. um, and it was a sauce that Rebecca has mastered with uh, tons and tons of different fresh herbs. Mm. Uh, so it was salmon uh, on a plank, barbecued, and, and a cedar plank, right? A cedar that was plank, yeah. When we see friends and family from that ceremony that's been years now, they don't remember the wedding. They remember the salmon. <laughs> well, and that's exactly what you wanted, isn't it? That's exactly what you want. Exactly. Right. 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 And, and the th- what happens with the plank is, you know, you soak the cedar plank and, and on the barbecue, the flames cause it to begin to char. And then mm-hmm. it charges smokes and then it passes all the tremendous heat through the wood. So the, so the salmon never touches the flame. So the mm-hmm. salmon becomes super, super juicy and has the flavor of the smoke from the wood. <laughs> we were cooking that morning. I marinated the salmon overnight and then we mm-hmm. barbecued that morning. So it was ready. Mm-hmm. And I was almost late. I almost didn't make my own wedding. I was putting my makeup <laughs> on in the car over to Panga Canyon to get to the ceremony and I was car six. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's how our lives are. You know, when you have mm-hmm. kids in the home and it's just, yeah. is that's why we call it the crowded years. It's so full yeah. of life. Yes. And you just got to roll with it, you know? Yes. And so Rebecca became over the, those years in LA, the, this master uh, cook. I mean, she, she does all of the really elegant Things mm-hmm. like we do sauces, you know, the, the French quiches. And the kids now, when they come home, they just want all that comfort food. They want the meal yeah, yeah. they grew up with. That's so lovely. And yeah, it gives me a lot of hope. I do cook with my kids, I, my oldest especially. The kitchen's kind of a transcendent place. It connects you to the past, but I think for me a little bit, it connects me to the future also, but I've been almost afraid to hope for that, you know, and it's kind of encouraging to talk to you and hear that I can let myself enjoy those moments of projecting into the future. It's going to happen. Very much. Absolutely. It's wonderful that you say these things. It's Mm. just exactly, we live for these moments of, you said said it's a transcendent Transcendent place. place. What a wonderful Mm. word, because the truth is that the kitchen does transcend all the other issues in the family, in the home. Mm. Well, so let's, okay, so we've gone back a little bit. We've gone back to your love story. I would love to go back even further because one thing that I also enjoyed so much about your cookbook and the things you talk about is really is really honoring those who loved us through their cooking. Yes. And so I'd love to hear about the people that influenced and taught you and loved you with their sure. cooking. Actually, it's my mom. It's my mom. We had very little money. There were four kids, and and uh, but what she she made up for the lack of time and money with care and with a garden, and so we mm. she had 
enormous garden the entire time I was growing up. So mm-hmm. when she would make, you know, a real mom food, like spaghetti and chili and stuff. But if you think about what those meals are made from, when she would simmer down her own canned tomatoes, the flavors were just explosive. I was the youngest of the four. And so Okay. I would hang I would hang around the kitchen while she cooked because from a very early age she encouraged me she, she knew about my passion for it uh, she well she was the one that, that first started talking to me about poor man's lobster so hmm. you know, monkfish when she made monkfish I, she was right it tasted like lobster and you know you steam it and and, and it'd be lobster texture and dip it in butter and and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so yeah so that she was, uh, she was, she made mom food. Very comforting. Yeah. Mm. Rebecca, did you have any leanings towards cooking before you met John? No, I, I was not a very good cook. I, when my mom finally decided that she was going to, I was a wild child. I was a tomboy. <laughs> so she decided she was going to take on this task to get this tomboy wild child to cook. And my very first lesson, I burned the water. I forgot. I burned the, water, I burned the pan. I almost lit the house on fire. <laughs> um, but with my, and my mom was a good cook. She was one of those cooks. She got into the whole uh, health food scene during that time. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, she bought from farmer's markets. You know, we, we lived in a city where Trader's, Trader Joe's, the first little store of Trader Joe's started. You Does know, Trader uh, Joe's go back that far? Oh, yeah. No, they wore the Hawaiian shirts and they had these wondrous things from all over the world. You know, these ingredients that she didn't cook with chocolate or sugar. She cooked with carob. (laughs) She made broccoli soups. uh, She made chicken soups and things like that. And when she married my stepdad, I was very young. I was four years old. Stepdad was this, this, you know, he owned a jewelry store. His name was Sam. He, I, I heard later that he, you know, after he passed, he had a jazz club in Santa Barbara in the 60s. I mean, this man was... This man was awesome. He just loved food. I had never really associated men cooking in the kitchen, right? And so here comes my stepdad who's like, let's put some French in here. Let's put some, some, some dishes from Italy in here. And it was the first time I had sauteed mushrooms. First time I tasted it. Okay. He cooked, he roasted a chicken with potatoes for the, with the drippings like the French do, you know, in Paris yeah. there, you know, he loved, loved Chinese food. He was, he was really my entry into good food, good tasting food, but I didn't know how to cook it. John. <laughs> John. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, your life in some ways really mimicked your mom, at least in that. Yes. I mean, she, you know, she was a single mom when she met him very much. And so this was a thing where he introduced her to, to just a whole new world. And I think that's important for couples. I think that's important for any kind of relationship is that you learn from each other and you open up to new experiences and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and and again, it's this, I don't think that there would be world calamities if we just broke some bread together and cooked mm-hmm. it. If everybody mm-hmm. just got in the kitchen and everybody had a role, but, you know, let's do some cooking. <laughs> Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit, the act of preparing, right? Because you say that your food is the antithesis of fast and easy, which really made me laugh because 
I think I enjoy the act of cooking so much that that appeals to me. But I also, you know, we all live in this world. Like you keep talking about these crowded years. Those are the years we're in, you know? Yeah, and yeah. And so what is the rhythm of your life that you have time to do these feasts, these everyday feasts? And what is it, what does it mean to make time? Well, we're, we're very fortunate in that we're artists, we're writers. And so mm-hmm. we do work from our, oftentimes work from our home. Whenever I shoot a movie or a TV show, of course, I have to be somewhere in the world on the set to shoot mm-hmm. that. Uh, but as writers, a lot of our lives have been spent really in our home writing. So uh, it's, our rhythm of our lives is that we uh, write all day. and and But as artists, you don't, it's not like you, it's not a nine to five job. It's, there was yeah. never a stopping, you know I mean? You're always trying to figure out the characters, the characters are speaking to you, mm-hmm. um, the story is unfolding in your mind and you're, and so when we're in the kitchen uh, after the day begins to end, we often start at four or five in the afternoon to prepare a, a meal. So that works so well with cooking for us. Yeah, is it, yeah. The creative process is very much going on in the kitchen. Together we'll bounce ideas uh, I will ask Rebecca or she will ask me, what do you think of a uh, uh, story idea? And- it's almost, I was just realizing as, as John was talking, that it's kind of like the pro- the process that, at least I, I can speak for myself as a writer, when I approach projects. Mm-hmm. So you got to do the research, right? So you're mm-hmm. doing the research for that recipe. <laughs> it's got a beginning, middle and end. And a lot of time you do it, you're, you're laying the groundwork in there. We, we call it digging the well. So that may mm-hmm. be you've done the prep of maybe you do some broth from a, the night before meal. So you have these sort of building blocks that you can work with. So that's the beginning of it. And then you go out and you forage for that and you find it. And you, you go mm-hmm. sort of like, like creating these character bios and, and doing the reconnaissance of, of for your plot. And then the, the middle part, the really like roll up your sleeves, hard work mm. of, in that narrative mm. to make this meal, right? And then the, mm-hmm. and then the end is this, this, this crescendo climax of you sit down and you toast and you have this elated smile on your face because yeah. you've made this, this amazing meal and you get to share mm-hmm. it. John, when he, when he makes a meal, he loves to cook so much. When he sits down and he has this this victorious smile on his face, mm. and so it's that's that's kind of for me. I love that analogy of storytelling. I love that analogy. Anybody who's good at their job knows most of it is just working really hard, and yeah. cooking is just working really hard. But you get a few flashes of insight along the way, mm-hmm. and you're like wouldn't this make that special, you know, just something along the way, which is also very much like the creative process. You're just like, I know what it would take to kind of bring this to the next level. And John, I was thinking when you were talking, uh, the phrase active rest kept coming to my mind because I think that's what cooking is to me. It's an active rest. So I love that. What you guys are saying, I'm just resonating so closely with both of those. I love that phrase, and that's exactly what mm-hmm. what we experience when we're in the kitchen. Very much. I think it's, and I've used the word therapeutic before. Yeah. And it's kind of like it's almost an alchemaic process. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we as writers who love mythology and things like that, we're looking for the magic everywhere. Yeah. Looking, uh, for the magic in the ordinary, you know. Yeah. And we find that in the process of cooking. And then you get to eat it. Yeah, right. And share it. 
Yeah, and have it for lunch the next three days. Right, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so while we're talking about all of these analogies, um, you you analogized between cooking and music. So you said that. Um, what did you say? You said your favorite food is inspired by jazz and rock and roll. So tell me more about that. I use that that musical expression to to talk about how we feel about American cooking should have the spontaneity and the vitality and the exuberance of those art forms. Mm. We love fusion uh, for American cuisine. We like bringing together both uh, different areas of the country. An example is we talked about that the two best crab cakes we've ever had are, are Commander's Palace, the number, often voted the number one restaurant in America, which is in New Orleans, mm-hmm. in the Garden District. And the other one is from, a, from an unnamed uh, <laughs> an unnamed dive. Uh, you know, I went into, and, and you know the experience very well. You sit at the table outside. You have the butcher blo- butcher's table. Uh, paper mm-hmm. and they dump the crabs they give you a hammer i mean you know mm-hmm. it, it, and it was exquisite uh because it was right out of the bay so when we do our crab cakes it's a fusion between these two traditions of um, the new orleans crab cakes and and the maryland that makes sense and so this recipe that we're talking about today came from i guess the jazz capital of the world right yep yep mm-hmm. i had a close friend who was cajun from 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 a part of the from deep in the uh, the swamp lands, and so he took me one time uh, to to a little uh, a low little um, a restaurant owned mm-hmm. a local locals only, and and it was at night. It was very mysterious, you know. You're going deeper and deeper and deeper into the swamps, and mm-hmm. you know there suddenly were lights in a low slung place, right along uh, uh, right along the creek, and so we pulled up to okay. this low this low slung place. Mm-hmm. And there in the docks were boats that actually brought in the shrimp and brought in the crawfish. And so 10 feet away was the little restaurant, um, little cafe. And, mm-hmm. and inside the cafe was local family singing in, in mm-hmm. patois. And I was accepted. This, this stranger was accepted because the person I was with was, was part of the family. And closeness of the people was, was such that... I was taken in, and, yeah. and the the ladies who were did all the cooking were right out there in the open. Now, of course, in in sort of fancy restaurants, you can sit and watch the open kitchen. Yeah, that's how. <laughs> that's, that's right there. And I was so mesmerized, and they knew that I had fallen completely head over heels in love with them, and so they spent time hours uh, teaching me about how to make uh, gumbo, how to make jambalaya. That there are so many secrets to Cajun cooking that were are just revelatory, and then when I had the best food of my life, somewhere around midnight we had to go, and they said we're still going to send with you some gumbo, and I said oh, okay that'd be wonderful, and they handed me a gallon of gumbo. <laughs> Now, a gallon of gumbo, I mean, the amount of andouille yeah. sausage. Yeah, which it's worth its weight in gold. <laughs> oh, my God. I said, I said ladies, I, I, I can't mm-hmm. take it. They made it very clear I was leaving with a gallon of gumbo. <laughs> mm. So then I, I was so in love uh, that when I would go to the jazz festival every year in New Orleans, there was at that time, Paul Prudhomme was the chef, at, as I mentioned before, at Commander's Palace. 
and, and he was the first Cajun chef they ever had. Their food okay. was was always considered to be, you know, high-toned Creole cooking. So when he he transformed Commander's Palace, he made them fantastically famous. And so when he finally left Commander's Palace, he opened his own restaurant called K Paul's. And that was a, a, around 1981, 82. And so <laughs> to get into k you'd have to wait in line for about an hour. I mean, you'd, the line would go down for block and block. And, and he was the one that made famous uh, black and redfish. Yeah, he was the first person to make it. I mean, and, and, and it became so famous in America that every, every high-toned restaurant in America is making black and redfish. So, yeah. but, but not like Paul could make it. And, and Paul, and like myself, he was a mama's boy, so he would hang around. He told <laughs> we, we had many, many long talks. And again, that that's, explains so much about the, this famous, internationally famous chef, one of the most famous chefs in the world at the time. Uh, he w- would take his time to talk to this fanboy off the street, off the yeah. sidewalk, you know, and we'd be, he had a table way back in the corner and he would spend a long time talking through everything, helping you understand what the concepts were of Cajun food, what, what the structure was, what they always do. They're very, very super uh, concerned about having a certain balance in te- peppers and flavors and vegetables. And so, again, that's another example of how uh, the Cajun people uh, were, were I, they accepted me with open arms, and I'll, I'll, mm. I'll never. Mm. And that's how I learned to make jambalaya. So interesting about hearing John tell these very nostalgic stories of of being with Paul and in, in, in New Orleans. And the first time I ever tried to make gumbo was for my my dad, who I've been talking about, and he had visiting this wonderful Parisian woman, this wonderful woman who had owned one of the oldest restaurants in Paris, right? He had, her name was Renata. And she came to our home for a meal for the first time. And I decided because I wanted something Americana, but I also wanted something with French roots, I decided I was going to make gumbo. And, and he had never told me the New Orleans stories. I had no idea the man could make gumbo. So what I did was I cracked open one of those old school time cookbooks of cuisines around the world. Are you familiar with those books? Time life books. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody mentioned them here on the podcast the other day. So I, I cracked open the America, the American one. There was this whole thing about New Orleans cooking. And I was like, I'm going to make gumbo. And, and in traditional uh, New Orleans cooking, they make the roux first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'd never made roux in my life. And as this wonderful Parisian woman speaking, you know, in French and they're having all this, this wonderful cheeses and, and, and champagne from France and everything like that. I'm in the kitchen creating a blob of flour <laughs> and, and butter. And I, oh, Rebecca. I am in tears. Sons come in the kitchen and see me. He says, mom, are you okay? I said, no, (laughs) it's a disaster. I sent him to the store for chicken. And I said, I'm going to do what I know best. I'm going to do shish kebabs. And I'm going to not drink this bottle of wine. And I'm going to (laughs) live. You rose to the occasion. (laughs) And my boys in the kitchen helped me to make those shish kebabs and covered for me. No one had a clue that I was having a total mental meltdown. Oh my goodness, what a story. So it was such a traumatic event. I have never attempted gumbo again. I have never attempted a roux again. And so he's, so one day he says, I'm going to make gumbo. I was like, no, no, you can't do it. It's just, it's impossible. 
But his secret was, is he made the rue at the end and put it in, yeah. in the yeah. middle, is what yeah. the, the, this, the, that he learned in, in New Orleans. And so he yeah. did it, and it was fabulous. And so he always does the gumbo now. <laughs> someday, oh. I'll, someday I'll try it again. Yes, but, and it'll go great. I have no doubt. Okay, so I want to slow down a little bit, and I just get educated. So educate me a little bit more on... You said, now your mom actually identified as Cajun. Well, she was from the place in uh, Canada, French Canadian, uh, Acadia. And, 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 you know, and in the, in the wars that were going on at that time in 1755, the English uh, won a war with the French. And so the French were expelled from much of Eastern Canada and okay. the people that were expelled were my, my, my mom's people, the Acadians. Okay. Uh, the only reason her side of the family survived that great migration of uh, people, they literally, they literally put thousands and thousands of Acadians on boats and, and, and they were expelled. Uh, and, they, and they bumped their way down the eastern coast of America. Um, yeah, why in the world did they end up in new, of all the places they could have they, stopped along sure. the way? As they were rejected everywhere, they were driven out everywhere. They, 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 and their boats as they as they came down over years and years. And the only place that took them in with arms uh, extended were the folks that lived in the swamps of New Orleans. And so they settled in, and that the word Acadians became Cajuns. Okay, so who was living in the swamps? Well, the there were native the native uh, peoples lived there. Also, there were a number of escaped slaves there, and there yeah. were a number of peoples who lived there that were l- locals that were um, part of the Creole culture. So okay. in, in a way, it was the original melting pot of America. Yeah. Uh, because at that same time, in the early 1800s, uh, New Orleans was in many ways the cultural epicenter of America. They had the first opera house, for instance, in America yeah. was in New Orleans. By the by, the Creoles, and yeah. so the, I I just love the Cajun people. I uh, love the uniqueness of the culture, and like I say, the reason that I do so is is how kind uh, and and embracing they are to me, but also to life. They yeah. view life as a celebration. Or Cajun cooking then became a combination of French food from French Canadians, and really and, like Southern and probably, of course, also African influences you know, contributed by black slaves who had escaped and also from Creoles and probably Caribbean food as well. Oh, sure. absolutely. The island food okay. is very, very much. I mean, you know, they took from the uh, Native American peoples, uh, for instance, they made filet and filet is simply sassafras is made from bark. Oh, okay. and, so- mm. and what differentiates the Cajuns from the Creoles? It's a complicated subject. Um, okay. <laughs> complicated subject. Uh, but so, but I do know that the one constant is that is that the Cajun folks they call it the Holy Tr- Trinity. They believe in the combination between bell peppers, celery, and onion. For instance, I know it sounds uh, prosaic, but the thing is that they, it must be the equal quantities of those three vegetables and. They, ha- they also have another holy trinity, which is three peppers, the black pepper, the white pepper, and the red pepper, which is cayenne, of course. So th- those all have to be 
of balanced and, and, and equal. And so then when you come, and then of course from the Italians, they have the oregano and from the French, they have the, the thyme. So all of these tastes, the Cajun food has that kind of tension of mm-hmm. spiciness and umami flavors and, and you know, all that savory qualities of smoked meats because they make their own undue sausage. That's interesting to me. I thought that just all three had to be present. I didn't know that there was a specific proportion that they all had to be in. Yeah, they want to be equal. So uh, you said that there's real jambalaya and then there's jambalaya that the rest of us eat. What's the difference? Well, if people who you know have never been to Cajun country and have never tasted, they think of it as a rice meal that has a tomato base. Nothing could be mm-hmm. further from the truth. Uh, the, the rice in a jambalaya it's like the canvas that you paint on. So it's not mm. actually, it's, it's, yes, it has rice in it. And the rice soaks up all these um, uh, umami, savory flavors from all these different sources. And they have different kind of uh, gumbos, but there's one jambalaya. And by one jambalaya, I mean, the jambalaya has everything in it. Mm. Uh, and so when you have jambalaya, there's sausages and shrimps and crawfish and salt and you know smoked meats and pieces of uh, of seared chicken and so and then we we always also add for, from the Monterey Bay where we live we have Dungeness crabs and so we love mm-hmm. to throw in all this claws and the Dungeness crabs and you know I said again a little bit of that rock and roll jazz yeah. is, hey, <laughs> you live in the Monterey Bay put yeah. in those crabs. <laughs> Yeah, you just riff with whatever you have. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's and funny. Like oh. It could be these, these these very different notes, and you're thinking, wow, that's 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 an interesting way to present those notes. It's sort of like with different ingredients as well. You're not quite sure how it's going to turn out. So does your jambalaya taste different every time you make it? No, it's always the same. That's it's the always point. the same. Yeah, that's, that was the whole point that from Chef Paul Prudhomme taught me is that it always must be, because if it's fabulous, it needs to be fabulous every time. I'm a huge believer in when you've spent years adjusting and refining a recipe. After all these years, we I don't taste the food as I cook it because I don't need to. I know what it tastes like because I know it's going to taste the same every time. He's very good about that. He's That's one of the reasons we started the book was that I never wrote anything down. I was like you. I went to the fridge and said, what's here? What am yeah. I going to cook with like, people tonight? You know, uh, so, and then if it was a victory, he would say, well, how did you do that? Do it again. And, I, <laughs> and so it would be different each time. So he'd be in the kitchen a lot writing these things down. And then we put them in this binder, right? There's always like a binder, like binder, and the binder just became this huge, thick. Oh my goodness! We're talking about a binder that's one foot thick. Yeah, it just became ridiculous. Either we, either we're going to write a book, or we're going to just drown in all of these. And then it was our daughters who decided for a birthday gift for their for their dad one year. They put it in a really nice binder with love. <laughs> and our 16-year-old daughter at the time was a wonderful writer. She wrote the dedication. And it really inspired us to say, well, why, why couldn't we do a book? You talk a lot about sourcing ingredients in your book. And I'd love to know a little bit about how you source, um, especially as I go to make it, how you source some of these ingredients in jambalaya. So for instance, you brought up the tomatoes earlier. Uh, It's an interesting dilemma we have in America because as you know, tomatoes don't taste very good anymore, generally speaking, in grocery stores because they're made by agribusiness to ship. 
And so the shipping part is the, where the profit is, not so much how, what it tastes like. But the tomatoes that we use, pretty much all cooking, unless we have our own tomatoes, mm-hmm. uh, there's a place in Italy, the San Marzano region of Italy, we believe is, are the best tomatoes to cook with because they're thick fleshed, uh, not so juicy. It's a very rigid system they have in Italy because it's such a highly regarded tomato that, that they have their own little symbols and, you know, the seal. Wow. as far as the, the basis of all of our cooking is bone broth. So mm-hmm. if it's a chicken meal, we are using, we never use, I don't think we ever use water in any recipe and have ever. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it's either, it's either bone broth, chicken bone broth, uh, in which we boil down the bones of, of rotisserie chickens. Chickens has already been cooked at a certain quality uh, to the bones. And then when they're, they are boiled down, um, that bone broth, when cooled, has, it becomes a light jelly, actually. It's mm-hmm. so, so filled with marrow. So, uh, and then the same thing with uh, shrimp shells, that, particularly the heads, uh, if you have whole shrimp. Uh, but for sure the shells. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after the, every, everyone eats their meal, then we keep the shells, we boil them down. It's the same with duck. For us, that's our, that, in terms of ingredients, that's completely crucial. But, mm-hmm. Do you happen to know what kind of two questions backing up to the tomatoes? Do you happen to know what, who was the chef at commander's palace? And Paul then Prudhomme. Paul Prudhomme. Okay. Do you happen to know what kind of tomatoes he used? Yes. He, he told me that, that he, he used tomatoes from uh, a piece of land near where his mom had a, <laughs> had a garden. <laughs> so wow. he, he knew what they, he actually talked about how the particular soil they had it's the delta of the mississippi river right yeah. that's that's where the cajuns are and so the, the the soil that is washed and gathered there has a very particular flavor and and i would i could recognize it you could line up a hundred tomatoes if i tasted them i would know which ones were came from that part of louisiana and wow. everyone knows that everyone who lives there knows that you would only use tomatoes from this vast garden near where his own mom grew tomatoes wow isn't that amazing? Yeah. And um, so do you guys most evenings after your meal go ahead and just start a broth going for a couple hours? Very commonly, once this, when I, you, you simmer for about 45 minutes at very low temperature. So it's just with a, with a, with a lid, a jar, so that the, um, uh, the bone broth is filled with filled with the, the um, marrow. Then I just turn the turn it off, put the lid on, and I leave it all night long. Mm-hmm. And, and so in the morning, we just, you know, strain out all the bones and stuff. I believe that the cooling process is also yeah. part of the, the why the, it's such a bone broth is so fantastically superior yeah. to the stuff you buy in the store, which is called chicken broth. Yeah. Like I've never really made a broth without adding in some vegetables as well. Or do you just get that pure flavor of whatever animal? Yes, the pure, pure flavor because uh, there are some meals that we're all – you. I for <laughs> instance, just yesterday, literally yesterday – uh, we received a shipment from Cajun country of andouille sausage. We, mm-hmm. we, uh, and, and when I say sausage, they're about they're, they weigh one and a half to two pounds per sausage. So they're oh my, they're huge, and, and the thing and they're smoked and they're fantastic. And so from a very particular place called Jacobs, it's it, everyone down. Everyone knows that Jacobs makes the best. And, and so we just feel like we, if you want to make, you know, these, the stuff, you just get all the stuff that, that, 
they use. Yeah. yeah. How about your chickens? Uh, we. Uh, I'm so glad you asked this because we're all. <laughs> so here's the thing about chickens. So uh, my view is this: we only buy a free range chicken, and we only buy ever chicken that never touches water. So we only buy air chilled chicken. Chicken is like a sponge. As soon as you, as soon as you, well, when you buy it, it's been it's been washed and soaked in water, and the whole process is is just not something that's that I find is 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 um, conductive to to the flavor. So so you we buy there's a company called Smart Chicken, uh, and there's a company called Mary's, uh, M A R Y S Mary's. So Mary's and Smart Chicken, these companies never let the fish the the chicken. Uh, touch water. Um, so the, when you when it arrives, the intensity of the flavor because it's free range, and the f- intensity of the flavor because it's air chilled uh, when it was prepared make all the difference in the world. Uh, there's just no there's no comparison. Uh, so yes, we're we're passionate about getting sourcing chicken. Uh, as you can see, we're all about foraging, whether it's urban foraging, which is which 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 store has the best stuff, or yeah, or whether yeah. we're forage we as you know, we hunt for wild mushrooms in the mountains and and we um, I spent much of my life fishing on the ocean. So the same is true when we shop. It's also we call it urban foraging. Uh, so we yeah, so we wanna we want the best stuff, right? So sometimes you go to six different stores to get all them to get the right stuff. John goes to six different stores. Rebecca <laughs> <laughs> and Rebecca forges through the fridge and figures out how to make a, <laughs> a gourmet meal. <laughs> yeah. And and back to the broth, one and, and I'm glad John brought up his fishing is because he was fishing every two weeks during the season out at the Channel Islands and he would bring back these beautiful rockfish. They're like snapper. And I was really into the bouillabaisse. My dad, my dad loved bouillabaisse. He loved going into a restaurant or going to France and, and getting bouillabaisse. And I thought, I'm going to make bouillabaisse because I'm going to make all... I couldn't find fish stock in any of the stores. Nobody back then sold fish stock. But we discovered that if you want your house to <laughs> smell like fish forever... Mm. can and do fish stock in your kitchen because then it saturates the wall so what i realized was i had to get put it on a our outdoor barbecue or coleman stove yes because the because the fish smell is so intense it just yes is everything you know i'm really glad you said that because when i you were talking about broth every evening i thought you know i like the idea i can see that being um Again, it's just that wholesome feeling of like, I'm providing, I'm thinking ahead, you know, but I was thinking, oh, but I kind of like getting everything reset in terms of the smells. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, right, the thing right. is, that the fish is the one exception that we always do outside. But I, I actually love the smell of boiling down the bones of chicken because the whole house smells like chicken soup. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it smells like we, we were talking earlier about how food is memory. And, and and what's what is turns out to be um, literally physically how the brain works because it turns out that the place in the brain that stores memory is also the place in the brain where the sense of smell is. Yeah, yeah. isn't that interesting? interesting? And of course that would be true, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and and just one more thought about that. We always like to be talking about umami you know, the fifth flavor, because it's a crucial idea about that sense of something being savory when you taste it. Mm-hmm. And that's the umami uh, flavor. And it turns out that the first time we taste umami in our lives is mother's milk. 
isn't that fascinating? Are you yes. kidding me? Pa- oh, packed with umami. We identify the umami flavor with mama's home. I have never heard that before. Yeah. Mm. Well, just one last thing on the sausage. You call for tasso sausage. So tell tasso. me what that is in particular. Yeah, tasso is, is tasso is tricky to have in recipes because it's a very particular way of preparing uh, uh, pork. And, and it's very unique to the Cajun people. We decided to use a pork shoulder. If you roast the pork shoulder in, in the same way that when we make, for instance, um, shredded pork, pulled pork, um, what we do is that we prepare that pork shoulder by packing it the night before with all kinds of powdered spices and certain particular vinegars and a Louisiana hot sauce called Crystal. Uh, which is the real deal. So that basically recreates what Tasso is. But you can buy Tasso. Jacobs, which I mentioned earlier, when you buy uh, Andouille, just simply order Tasso. What do you recommend for those of us who have no crawfish anywhere near us or much of a desire to eat that? <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of hard work. <laughs> well, to, well, let me answer two ways. First of all, for those people who are looking for crawfish, <laughs> it's very easy to get them. Uh, there's a company called Cajun Grocer. They send already uh, cooked, bright red, uh, wonderful uh, crawfish. But if you, if, you, if you can't get or don't want to actually use crawfish, we have found that Dungeness crab is a pretty good replacement. Or langostinos. Or langostinos. And langostinos, by the way, are easily available. At Trader Joe's sells them. And langostinos are actually pretty close in flavor. Very close. Lots of supermarkets now have langostinos, both the tail meat and the actual uh, shells, langostinos. And, and they're, they're, they're really terrific. Just tell everybody how they can find you, your cookbook, your Instagram, all of that. Sure. I mean, the Instagram account is Our Wild Savory Kitchen, as you know, and we have a blog of the same name. We make no profit whatsoever Mm -hmm. uh, on any cooking ever. So we, uh, whatever money is made from the cookbook is all donated. All right. Well, this has been so lovely, you guys. Oh, it's been it's been amazing. Very Thank much you so it. much. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon, okay? Bye bye. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you again, John and Rebecca, for your words for this episode and especially for your kindness over the last two weeks. All of the ways that you can connect with John and Rebecca are in the episode post on my website, thestoriedrecipe.com. Also, if you've enjoyed this episode, I do hope you'll take a moment to subscribe and share. I truly, truly believe in the power of story, these days in particular, to break down misunderstandings, create connections, operate in the world of nuance, and build empathy. Your support will allow me to continue to tell the stories of people all over the world in their own words and in their own voices. So again, it would mean the world to me personally if you would subscribe and share the Storied Recipe podcast. Thanks and have a great week, my friends.